Well, over the past couple of weeks in our sermon series on the Shorter Catechism, we have been looking at our duty to God. And I have informed you that the whole uh, last part of the Catechism, the remaining part of it from uh, question 39 all the way to question 107, is about our duty to God. So let's confess question 39 in unison where the subject is introduced for us. Question 39, what is the duty which God requireth of man? The duty which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. Now that's pretty simple. We just need to do what God has told us. Nothing real complicated about that. We have seen that there are two parts to the duty that God presently reveals to us, or not always. But first, there is the moral law, which is the duty that God gave us when he created us. God made us in his image with an innate sense of right and wrong and with a conscience that reminds us that we ought to do right. We have a sense that we ought to do right. Although sin has corrupted us and it causes us to distort what is right and what is wrong, we are still moral beings who at least know that we ought to do right and not wrong. Although sin has corrupted us and causes us to distort these things, we still have, we're still moral beings. But now that we're fallen, there is also a second kind of duty that God has required of us, that he requires of us now. All those who have sinned against God, it is our duty to come to Christ for the salvation that God promises us through him. We will begin a detailed study of this duty to believe the gospel several months from now when we get to question 85. But until then, we'll be looking at our duty to obey the moral law. So many times these two sections will be distinguished as law and gospel. But you see, the gospel is something that we obey, isn't it? We're commanded to repent and believe and to continue in the word of God for as as the call of uh, salvation. So, um, but for now, the moral law. So last week we began this part of our study with question 40. So let's confess this one together as well. Question 40, what did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. We learned last week that even though we're fallen, that we are moral beings. And Paul spoke of how that even the Gentiles, the nations who don't have God's written moral law, still have this sense of right and wrong that we've talked about. They distort and twist it and they don't always obey it, but they still have it. And, uh, and God's people who have the written law have no grounds for boasting because even though they have it spelled out by God, we still disobey it ourselves. So we can't say, oh, those, those people over there, they don't have the law, so they're wicked and stuff. We're wicked too, even more so maybe because we know we, we've been given more revelation. But it's a marvelous thing that God has given us his moral law in a written form. Uh, Today, we're going to take up question 41, 
where we're going back to look at how God first gave us a summary of the moral law in the Ten Commandments. So let's confess this question together now, question 41. Where is the moral law summarily comprehended? The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Now, in relation to this question, I have chosen Exodus 19 for our scripture reading today. This is a chapter that comes immediately before the moral law itself, the Ten Commandments, in which the Lord gives us some insight into why he has given this summary to us. So please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word now. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim and came to, had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, and the, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there, was, there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, 
Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. May God bless the reading of his holy and infallible word. So the Lord, we see here, graciously gives his law to us as his redeemed people. Or we could say he gave his law to us when he did it in this concrete written form. As we look at this, let me remind you that if you're a Christian, you are the heirs of Israel. Not in a carnal bodily way, according to the flesh, but in a spiritual way. You have been grafted into God's kingdom from the nations. Why is this important? Because when God gave us this summary of his moral law, when he gave it to Israel 3,500 years ago, he was also giving it to us. It was for them as well as for us, for the people who live today. And here in Genesis 19, we see how he went about giving it to us, to all of us who belong to the church in all ages. He did it long, a long time ago when only Israel was in the, the nation that made up the church, but it was given for us. You see how the Lord emphasizes that he is giving his law to the people that he redeemed to be his own people. You remember from our previous sermons about God's redemption that his, the purpose of his redemption is to restore us to him so that we can be his people and have him as our God. The entire human race rejected him at the fall, and God redeems us to bring us back to himself. Look at how he expresses this in verse 3 and 4. Exodus 19, 3 and 4. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So he's talking about the redemption. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God had delivered them from Egypt and then provided for them in order that he might bring them to himself, to be his people, to give them a land where they could serve him according to his precepts and ordinances. Of course, we now have even fuller revelation of what he has done to redeem us, do we not? How he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and how he gives us the Holy Spirit that we all might be his. It's a tremendous privilege to be his people when we, when we were wretched, helpless sinners without God in the world. Now we can be his. But even though he redeemed us out of Egypt, he, we did not know how to live. Yes, we are moral creatures, as we saw last week. Everyone is. Everyone has that innate sense of right and wrong, and we all know that we ought to do right. But over the generations since the fall, the human race became more and more proficient at twisting 
God's moral law and at excusing our sins. That's the reason the nations worship idols and the reason that they accept all sorts of deviant behavior, sexual perversion, lying, murder, and the like. Many times they even begin to say that some of these things are morally good. Sometimes they they become so confused that they think that sinful behavior is not even sinful. So here were his people whom he had redeemed to be his own, but they did not know how to live before God. It seems like the two great errors that nations fall into are um, idolatry, where they worship God in some way other than what he has appointed, and then end up worshiping other gods, and sexual immorality. That seems to be the two things that often lead off the rebellion against God. Usually they kind of still know that lying is not good and things like that, and that murder is not good, uh, stealing, that sort of thing. But uh, uh, certain ways that the perversion grows. So, so here were God's people whom were redeemed to be his own, but yet they were confused about how to live before him. Our fathers in Israel did not know what they should look like as God's people. So the Lord here tells our fathers that he is going to show them how to live as his people. He's going to reveal his will to them so that they can live as his people. Look at verses 5 and 6. You can see this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So they were going to be different. They were going to be God's people who do his will. And you shall be to me, he says, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. What a marvelous thing. God is instructing them about how to live as his people in order, he says, that they might be a special treasure to him. That they might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a people who worship him and a people who know him. He speaks here, not only, we should understand, of the moral law, but also of the revelation of the entire covenant, which includes the gospel. At this time in the history of the world, God was getting ready to reveal redemption through Moses. He was going to more fully reveal his covenant promises along with the ceremonies. See, Moses already brought them out of Egypt, but uh, now they would have revealed to them those ceremonies that God appointed for Israel in the Old Testament that exhibited Christ as both the priest and the sacrificial offering. And along with that, those gospel ordinances, if we could call them that, about God's provision for salvation, God would renew his moral law with the Ten Commandments, giving them the Ten Commandments, which they had not had before in that form. You can see in verse 8 how the people respond to the Lord's call to receive his instruction when they're told that he's going to give it to them. In the same way that we ought to respond to his call today. Verse 8. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Knowing that they are his people, you see, they are ready to receive his word. And they commit themselves to do whatever he says. This is very much like the vows that you took when you became a member of of this church, when you enter into communicant membership, in which 
We make vows declaring on the one hand that we trust in Jesus, that we're looking to him for salvation, we'll continue in the means of grace, but also that you will obey and that you will follow him and seek to do the will of God. Now I want you to notice something important. Look at the very terrifying way in which the Lord revealed the Ten Commandments to us at first. So we see then in the first place a wonderful thing, something we should cherish, be glad about, that we've been given in clarity about what is right and wrong, how we should live for God. But now, this terrifying way that God revealed the Ten Commandments to us, look at some of these things that He does, some of the things He does. In verse 9 through 15, the Lord instructs them that He's going to appear to them in a dark cloud. And He calls upon them to consecrate, to wash themselves in preparation for that meeting. He solemnly instructs Moses in verse 12 to set up boundaries around the mountain. And to warn the people not to cross those boundaries, not so much as to touch the mountain, lest they die because God is holy. A person that transgresses is to be immediately executed and it is to be done with arrows or stones so that the executioners do not cross the boundary in order to perform the execution. And then in verse 16, we're told that on the appointed day, there were indeed thunderings and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain, a loud trumpet blast so that all the people trembled. In the epistle to the Hebrews, we're told that even Moses greatly trembled. The mountain shook violently and it was engulfed in a great flame as the Lord descended to speak to them. The warnings were repeated again that the people must keep away from the mountain lest the Lord break out upon them in his wrath. And in Exodus 20, we read that after this revelation was complete and God had brought forth the Ten Commandments, the people pled with Moses and with the Lord that, they would not, that the Lord would not appear to them in this way again, lest they die. They were absolutely terrified. In in Deuteronomy 5, we're told that the Lord was pleased with this response. He considered it a proper response. They are supposed to be terrified, and so are you. If you come before God's law without protection, without the provision of the gospel, it should be a most terrifying thing to you. You don't understand anything about God. If it's not a terrifying thing about his holiness, you are completely mistaken about him. So we may ask, why does the Lord appear in this way to his own people whom he had redeemed for himself? Is it some kind of a cruel thing or some kind of power trip thing? No, these are the people that God redeemed, the people that Christ later came to die for, a people that are dearly loved by the Lord, so dearly that he sent his son and that his son came for them, the Lord appeared to them in this terrifying way for their own good, to show them that they were entirely unfit for his presence. Let me explain why they needed to see this and why you need to see this today. As I mentioned before, the whole human race is fallen into sin. And as people go on through the generations, even though death and suffering 
constantly remind us of how displeasing our sin is to God, we get kind of used to the death and suffering. We quickly forget about God. We push away the knowledge of God and we turn to idols. We trivialize our sin and we trivialize God's holiness. We think that God is a lightweight and that he does not care about sin, at least not much. We think God is a God that can be trifled with. We think it doesn't matter that we have not kept his commandments. It doesn't really make much difference. But it does matter. It matters very much. And so the Lord came in this terrifying way to wake us out of our moral slumbers, out of our indifference and our cavalier attitude about sin. It's a wake-up call to the truth that we are all accursed, every single one of us, unless our sin is dealt with. And it shows us that the problem is far too big for us to deal with. God gives us a picture of himself here that's supposed to stick in our minds. A picture that he is holy and that we are not. And that we are unfit to come before him as we are. These were his own people. This is us. And we're completely unfit. God would break out against us in terrible wrath if we dared to come before him. You see, if we step across that boundary and we come into his presence without any covering, any protection, then we are ruined. We need to see that we are incurably guilty. Again and again, the Lord has reminded of this. Expulsion from the garden with blood sacrifices to atone for sin should have made it clear from the very beginning of our sin in all ages, that we're unfit to approach God. Why did he bar them from the garden? Why did he have a shedding of blood to atone? The great flood where the Lord cleansed the earth of man because of man's wickedness should have made an indelible impression on all people who have ever lived. Only eight people in the entire world population survived that flood and those eight people survived because of a provision of God's grace not because they were worthy in Abraham's day there was the terrible destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah revelation given to us that should have stuck with us as God's people you remember that God made it clear to Abraham by coming to him and saying that the wickedness of that place had come up before him and that he was going to bring this about. But already by the time of Moses, after the, all that revelation that had been given in the ancient world, there was this dullness about the true character of God as a God who is intolerant of sin. And God wanted his own people above all people to be clear about this as a mercy to them. So he appeared to them in this terrifying way. As Moses says in Exodus 20, verse 21, that they might fear God so that they might not sin. Even at Pentecost, the Lord made such a revelation to his people when they realized through Peter's preaching that they had actually crucified the Messiah, their own Messiah. And they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Indeed, anyone who truly knows the Lord knows that he is a holy God and that we're unfit to stand before him without a mediator. That is something that God reveals to us when he redeems us as his redeemed people. But why does the Lord want to be seen in this terrifying way 
even by his own people. God wants us to see him in this terrifying way because this is what God is really like. God doesn't present fiction to us. He presents himself to us. God is not giving a false revelation of who he is at Sinai. God is not all the thunder and all the fire and the shaking of mountains and the terrible warning about being broken out against if you dare to come near are true. Sin is an abomination to Almighty God. It is an offense to His holy character. Hell is not something that He makes up. It is His response, just like to to anyone who transgresses His commandments. God wants His people to know this about Him. God wants His people to remember this about Him because they are so prone to forget. He wants us to know this about him so that we will know that we must come to Jesus Christ to be redeemed. From the very beginning, God had revealed blood sacrifices to atone for sin. You see how careless and cavalier people are about this. How often do you go to a funeral of someone who who did not know the Lord, who did not profess him even as as their redeemer? And people will say, oh, well, now he's in a better place. They're not in a better place. They have come before the holy God without the protection of Jesus' atonement. They're in a much, much worse place. Say, oh, well, now their suffering is over. No, it is not. Their suffering had not even begun compared to what it is now. And so you see in giving this summary of the moral law to his people in the Ten Commandments, the last thing God wanted them to do is to suppose that they were okay before him on the basis of their own goodness. That because, well, we were the people that were brought out of Egypt, that that meant that all was well. He wanted them to know blood must be shed for your forgiveness. That Jesus must come and bear the curse or you will be accursed. You are doomed apart from that. The reason that are invited to come near to God in the New Testament with boldness is not because God's attitude towards sin changed in the New Testament. Then in the Old Testament, God was like this and he said, oh, don't come near me or you'll be pierced through and don't go. And there was a thunder and the lightning and all these things. No, it's not because God decided that he would just overlook our sin. It's because he has fully atoned for our sin through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. You have to have faith in Jesus, not some kind of a sense that, oh, you know, God's not like that anymore. He is like that. He's just the same God. And it's God's will for all of his redeemed people to see that they can only draw near through Jesus crucified. In fact, now that Jesus has come, it ought to make an even greater impression on us of, the, of our unfitness before God. Now we fully know what had to be done to atone for our sins. Israel was given some ceremonies with blood of bulls and goats and priests offering them, washings and ceremonies of cleansings and all these things. But Jesus is the one now we know who cleanses us from our sin. Now we know that God's only son had to be crucified for us. This ought to cause us to take God's commandments even more seriously than our fathers of the old covenant did when they stood before the terrible revelation of God's wrath at Mount Sinai. 
I hate it when people will say that, you know, well, oh, now that it's the New Testament, you know, God's not like that anymore. Now he's gentle and he doesn't do. No, God is the same God. He's even more revealed that way in the New Testament. When we see that the line of the tribe of Judah had to suffer, that that mighty one who was holy and pure when he associated with us was there sweating blood in, in anguish as he anticipated what he was going to face. He was, you see, before Sinai, so to speak, bearing our sins, coming before his father. It was then that we see, when we see that, the horrible consequences of sin as we never saw it before. The thought of ever standing before God apart from a covering of Christ's atoning sacrifice ought to make us tremble what we know now far more than the people trembled when they were at Mount Sinai. But look at the church today. There are millions who name the name of Christ in an outward way and trust in their own works. Millions who trivialize God's moral law. Millions who believe they're acceptable to God simply because they try to do the best they can or because they go to church or because they say we keep the commandments. No, when God delivered his law, he delivered it to a people who did not keep his commandments. And that's why there was all the the smoke and all the thunder and lightning. Such people may be in the church, but they are not redeemed. There is no way to come before God but through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, Nathan was telling me of his Bible reading this morning when we were on the way to church and read about the, the ten virgins. And they all looked exactly alike. They all had gathered to meet the bridegroom. They were all eager, waiting for him to come. But yet five of them did not have the oil. Five of them were not resting in God's gracious promise of forgiveness and salvation, but somehow in something else. Whether it was that it just didn't matter, or whether it was that they were good enough, or whatever it was, was most likely a combination of those things. They were not prepared when he came. How then should we receive the summary of God's moral law? The Ten Commandments. Well, first we should receive the commandments with fear that makes us cling to Jesus Christ. You simply do not understand these commandments and their importance if you can look at them without casting yourself on Christ crucified. If you understand them, you will find tremendous comfort in the Savior. You will see that all the world is guilty and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the Father but through Him. And if you come resting in Christ, then and only then will you be able to fully welcome the commandments into your life without evasion, without excuses, without reinterpretation, avoidance, and all the other things that people do who do not have Christ. You simply will never truly receive them unless you come to them in Jesus Christ. Second, we should receive the commandments with trust in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to understand them. He is the one who opens our heart so that we receive the word of God with all of its power, so that the commandments actually convict us and lay us open before our holy God. Rather than just being a list of abstract rules, they become personal and real before God. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit will do his work in us and in others. 
Because there's no salvation unless He does. But that's not all that the Spirit does, is it? The Spirit also enables us to begin to obey these commandments, to actually put off the old man and put on the new man. The Lord promises that His Spirit will do this in the new covenant. In Ezekiel 36, 27, He says, I will put My Spirit within you, speaking of the new covenant here, and cause you to walk in My statutes, and you will keep My judgments and do them. There is no need to be discouraged then, Christian. God is at work in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So come to the commandments with hope and trust that God's Spirit will help you to understand them and keep them. Third, we should receive God's commandments comprehensively or fully. Now, this is a hugely important matter that we're going to be looking at quite a lot as we study the commandments over the next little while. You need to desire, you're going to hear this many times, to have the commandments speak into every nook and cranny of your life, to confront you and address you through and through in the whole person. Let them get down deep inside of you. Let these commandments expose all the dark places where sin lurks. Let them expose you and lay you open before God. And of course, when we say this, we're talking about the Lord himself as we personify the commandments. He's the one who speaks them by his spirit. You can only do this. You can only do that with the commandments. Let them penetrate you like that without running away because you have a savior. You have forgiveness. You can welcome the commandments rather than running away and hiding and justifying and evading and shifting and all of that. There are friends. The commandments are your friends to show you what is wrong with you so that you can change, knowing that you're already forgiven in Christ. In Christ, the commandments are not enemies, but friends, because they do not condemn us if we are in Christ. But they do convict us and show us what needs to change. God gave them to us to help jolt us out of our fuzziness that we so easily slip into if we don't renew our walk. Jesus taught us to look at the commandments fully and not superficially. Let me explain what I mean. For example, Jesus talked about the commandment, you shall not murder. The people in his day were just like the people in our day. They had forgotten about the thunder at Mount Sinai and the holy God who gave them that commandment. We're just looking at that one commandment now, you shall not murder. So for them, this meant nothing more than that you are not supposed to kill someone unjustly. It didn't apply to their personal enemies, of course, and it certainly did not address their heart. You could say, I've kept this commandment all my life. I've never, uh, I've never killed anyone. Um, but, but Jesus reminded us that we're in danger of the judgment if we so much as are angry toward our brother without a cause. If we call our brother a fool because of disdain for him, Jesus said that it is as if we have murdered him. God sees not only our actions, but also our wicked thoughts, the malice. And if there is no cleansing from Jesus, we go to hell for such sin. Now, let me just mention something here. In God's law, men were never given authority to look at the motives that are in the heart that cannot be seen. We're trying to do that today. 
Now, there was a certain sense of that with God's law. Like if someone had a premeditated murder, you could tell that from the way it was conducted. Like if they were laying in wait for them and jumped on them to to kill them, then you know that it's premeditated murder. But to try to examine people's hearts and say that there is hatred there or that there are things like that is not something that, um, that is in our province to do. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't do that. God has jurisdiction right down to the very depths of our being. And he sees those wicked thoughts. And if there is no cleansing from Jesus, we will go to hell, not just for wicked actions, but for our wicked thoughts as well. Do you see the point then? When we realize that the God before whom not one of his people could come without him breaking out against them because they were all sinners, we realize that a commandment like you shall not murder goes much deeper before the eyes of our holy God who sees our heart. So it is with all of the commandments. Further to this, when the commandment tells you not to do something, when a commandment tells you not to do something, like not to steal, don't just look at it as a prohibition. See it also as a command to do the opposite, to give as well. The way Jesus, Apostle Paul, teaches us in Ephesians 4.28. He says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. So do you see this? The commandment, if, if you see the commandment coming from God, do not steal, you see that it's not just about stealing. It's also about faithful labor and about generous giving. That's how we will understand it if we see that it is the God of Sinai who has given us that commandment and who evaluates whether we have kept that commandment. That's what we mean when we say that the Ten Commandments are a summary of God's law then. They are an outline, and if we take them to heart, then they speak to every part of our life. Our motives, our actions, our words, everything about us. A good legalist will always take the commandments in a very wooden way, and he might add a lot of other wooden commandments around the commandments to, to uh, try to, to, to make, impress people. But as Christians, we're to embrace them with our whole heart in a comprehensive, not a wooden way, because they are from a holy God who has saved us as his people. So uh, you, you receive them is that which speaks into everything that is related and associated with that sin. And I ask you, uh, I ask the children here, do you have rotten words that come out of your mouth? To your parents or toward your brothers and sisters? Maybe the problem is right here. Maybe your parents are telling you not to use bad words. Don't use those ugly names. But maybe you need to start speaking words that are helpful to your brothers and sisters. Not just don't speak ugly, mean words, but to also speak words that will be a blessing to them and that will encourage them and help them. If you're just focusing on what you're not 
supposed to say, what good is that going to do? You need to start speaking gracious words that help those who hear them. So often we just say, oh, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Well, what should we do instead? You haven't changed unless you start doing what you should do instead. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt word. This is a passage that uh, we had our children learn when they were young. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. You might be technically correct when you fire a rebuke off to an irritating little brother or, or little sister or something, but you're speaking words. The question is, are you speaking words that are really aimed at helping them? You know, sometimes we say, oh, look, look what you did. You, you did it. And you start, we start, might be right. Maybe they did. But are you coming in a way of helpfulness to bring edification? Are you coming because you're irritated? That's what the God of Sinai wants you to do, to come and speak words that are helpful. So don't take the commandments of God in a superficial way. It is the God of Sinai who spoke them, and He is holy, and He sees right down into the deepest parts of our lives, your thoughts and intents. He knows about the covetousness and the lust and the pride and the cursing that goes on inside of you. And there is nothing light or trivial about these things to God. Maybe you don't say curse words anymore. Well, that's good. Do you say you have cursing thoughts? That's not good if you do. See, there's nothing light here. Unless you have Jesus as your Savior, then these things will land you in hell. Not because God is unreasonable, but because God is pure and holy. And he does not tolerate such things before him that are defiled and corrupt. Fourthly and finally, you should receive God's commandments with delight. By taking them seriously and welcoming them into every nook and cranny of your soul, you're able by the gracious working of God's spirit to begin to conform more and more to God's holy ways. And that should thrill you. You know, you, you certainly aren't there yet. You know, we, we aren't, we, we aren't uh, all that we should be, but you can move in the right direction and you can be transformed to become more like Christ. And that's a delightful thing. I mean, if you're a, a tennis player and you, you hire a coach to improve your game, what do you want from your coach? Do you want your coach to have a really low standard? about everything and so that he constantly tells you oh you know well you're doing great you know every, every time you go for a lesson like oh perfect perfect yeah you can't can't improve on that any this this is wonderful or do you want him to find fault with you when i say no 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 you don't you gotta, you gotta your backhand is off you gotta you gotta do, do it like this you want him to never show you the things that need to change? Of course you don't. You, you want that coach to show you where you need to change, to show you what's wrong, so that you can start walking in a way that is right. So why is it that we take the commandments and we want to have a superficial way? Oh, I'm doing them all. Like the, the rich young ruler. I've kept all your commandments from my youth up. You know, that, that's where we want to go. You see what the law does for you in Christ. It's not there to condemn you, but it's there to guide you into more beautiful ways of living that God is pleased with. 
As God's people, we're supposed to say, as Psalm 139.23 leads us to say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Interesting, anxieties are a wicked way that is sometimes in us. Let's remember that too. We like to say those things aren't sinful. God has a different view. The Bible is full of praise for God's wonderful law though. Just listen to all of these accolades from a believing perspective. Psalm 119.97 Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 1.2 says of the blessed man, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Psalm 119.127 I love your commandments more than gold. Yes, more than fine gold. 1 John 5, 2-4 By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Romans 7, verse 12 Therefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Romans seven twenty two. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. So are you thankful for the Ten Commandments? Do you see how kind it was of the Lord to give them to us as his people, even in the terrifying way that he gave them, in order that we might know how important they are. He wants to receive them, us to receive them as his people that he has redeemed. He gives them to us along with the gospel that we might be a special treasure to him above all people. Just think, we are his people the people that he dearly loves. And that's why he gives us instruction about how to live in his sight. It is a summary of the moral law to help us so that we will not grow fuzzy about what he requires. Welcome the commandments, brothers and sisters. Welcome them fully into your heart and into your life. Pray that we will do that as we examine them over the next week's in the shorter catechism. Please stand and let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and praise you for giving us your holy commandments. We thank you for the way in which you gave them to us as well. Truly, Lord, it was a terrifying thing, but it was a necessary thing that your people might not trivialize those commandments, 
that they might not think that you were a God who said it but didn't really mean it. Father, we know that there is no compromise with you when it comes to your holy law. We know, Lord, that we come before you as one who terrifies us when we come as those who are lawbreakers without a covering. But we thank you, O Lord, that you also have sent Jesus Christ in order that we might have atonement by him. We thank you that he has fulfilled all righteousness and that because of him that we can truly fear you, Lord. We can come and serve you without running away. We can welcome your commandments and welcome them into the very depth of who we are to examine us and search us out and to show us those things in us that need to change. We pray then, Lord, that we would more and more understand these things, for we know that our understanding is superficial and shallow. But Father, we do thank you so very much that you have received us and that if we have repented and if we have turned to our Lord Jesus Christ, then you have pardoned all of our sin and you cleanse us from even those things that we cannot even see in ourselves at this time. But we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes that more and more we might grow and that we might see what is there in order that we might have a life that is pleasing in your sight. More and more so. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the blessing of the Lord our God. Now, may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.